The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn News. Stop right now and just take a moment. Just breathe. What around you captures your attention? What question would you like to ask about it? Hey, everyone. From LinkedIn News, this is In the Arena, a podcast exploring human potential. I'm Leah Smart, and every week you'll find me right here in conversation with bright minds and brave hearts, learning how we can improve our lives and our world by transforming ourselves. So I decided today to ask someone a little unexpected onto the show. Her name is Michelle Fowler, and she's an astronomer from NASA. And I kind of knew what to expect, but at the same time, I had no idea what to expect. And wow, what a conversation. So Michelle is a scientist and astronomer who has the privilege of studying and exploring the universe every single day and sharing what she's learned with people like us who typically don't get to do that. What drew me to her is not just the fact that she works at NASA or that she's an astronomer, but that she actually has and shares so much of her personal life and experience and connects it to such a scientific field, which oftentimes doesn't feel natural. She talks about the grief of losing her husband quite suddenly and where that took her. She is open about her range as a scientist who continues to ask questions that connect our existence with some form of meaning. And I so appreciated the way she talks about how we must be intentional with our lives. Because as she puts it, the universe or this thing we call life only has one chance to see through each of our eyes. Here's Michelle. I I have this tremendous privilege, day in and day out, studying the universe, exploring the universe where nobody has actually seen before. You know, we've been getting images back from the James Webb Space Telescope of the the farthest away parts of the universe we've ever seen. And that means we're looking the farthest back in time that we've ever seen. For the first time, Mm -hmm. being able to see whether the planets that are around other stars in the sky have environments like the Earth. And, you know, just just being around that, I spent yesterday at a community college and just being able to talk to the students about, uh, we were talking about these amazing objects called neutron stars. And we study thousands of them at NASA. They're monsters. They're things that we don't even know how the physics inside works. They bend space and time around them. They're only about 20 miles across. And it's just incredible to me that we're able to to explore these mysterious things that, that you know, you can see, but you can't explain and everybody, I think, ended the evening just on this this high of how much there was left to know. But then everybody went out and looked at the stars. It was a beautiful, clear night. You know, that, that experience of walking around New York City on a gorgeous spring evening and feeling alive. Sometimes in life, you open your eyes and then you open your eyes. There's a deeper way. You feel like you're experiencing this moment. Those are tremendously heartful, profound times for me. I think the main thing is just getting people to slow down slow down all of the things you have failed to do during the day, all of the ways we criticize ourselves, and just take a breath and think all of the life that's existed before us for billions of years, going back all the way to the beginning of life, has led to you here tonight in New York, looking up at the uh, the stars, and to just feel that presence of time and the universe around you. And just, just slowing down to me, that, that's the best way to do that. Oh, that makes me emotional. You're right. It is so profound. 
And that no matter where you are in the world, you can have that moment where you look up at the stars and go, wow. I think sometimes people go, oh, that kind of stuff is woo-woo or like, we don't have time for that. And I'm like, (laughs) what's woo-woo about the fact that we live on this planet and we can just look up at night and see that there is so much else happening outside of just our tiny little spectacle of our really meaningful lives? Yeah, from the perspective of a scientist, I think that, you know, every one of us becomes this cosmic miracle. And I don't really mean that in the sense of a religion, but the view that we have and all my scientist colleagues, we see the building blocks of life being built, you know, out among the stars. And then one of the reasons we study meteorites and we're so excited about bringing back this sample of an asteroid this fall is that this is material that was part of our solar system about four billion years ago, four and a half billion years ago before there was any life. But in the meteorites and asteroids are all the building blocks we need. Every molecule that makes up your DNA, your RNA. That was something we only just discovered in the last two years, is that we have now found every building block of DNA in these meteorites. In a meteorite. Yeah. And we see these chemicals forming between the stars. We see meteorites delivering them to a planet that was lucky enough to have liquid water on its surface. And they mixed. And you, you let that mix sit for four billion years. And here you are. And every single life form that has ever existed is unique. And, you know, we're all the descendants of single-celled animals a long time ago. You know, whether you were bacteria or whether you're an ant or whether you're, you know, a dolphin or whether you're us, this thing that we call life has one chance to be in you, to look through your eyes. You know, the, the universe becoming conscious just for a brief time in each of these forms. So the universe only has one chance to see through your eyes. And there is absolutely no judgment. You know, the universe does not really have, as far as we understand, any universal morality or or good or bad. But the thing that I like to put on it is Mm -hmm. the beauty that everything that exists is part of that ocean. We're all that little drop that becomes the ocean. Give yourself that much respect and your life that much respect, even if it is working hard or raising kids and going nuts with everything you need to do. The stars out there are looking down on you and you're looking back up at them and you're a bit of the universe made conscious briefly and it will never see through your eyes again. A bit of the universe made conscious briefly. That's so beautiful. I mean, we all are these these brief assemblages of atoms that come together, and they were things before us, right? Mm-hmm. They were dinosaurs, and they were meteorites, and they were you know molecules between the stars. So, I mean, that came all the way mm-hmm. from the Big Bang. That was made in the first three minutes that time existed. The history and the depth that we have, the connection to the universe is so deep, because you know we are the end state of stars. And when stars die, they become us, literally. What do you mean? Well, the only way you make atoms in the universe is inside stars. So the Big Bang gave us lots of hydrogen, you know, simplest chemical that exists. But I'm made of things like calcium in my teeth and carbon and phosphorus and the iron in my blood. The universe only has one way to make these atoms, and that's by fusion reactions inside stars. So when we look with the Webb telescope, We look so far away that we're seeing the universe as it was. Right now, the Webb telescope is looking back to a time about about 400 million years after the Big Bang. And and we hope to look back even further. Mm -hmm. But when you look back that far, there really isn't much of the stuff that makes us up. And in fact, with our deepest, farthest observations of the universe, there is only hydrogen and helium. Those were the only elements that existed. And then that hydrogen and helium gas gathered itself into the first stars, just by gravity, bringing the gases together. And the stars like the sun, you know, the reason the sun shines is that inside there is a nuclear reaction that is making 
small atoms, hydrogen atoms, that's ramming them together and making them into larger atoms. And so the only way you make a carbon atom, which is most of me, or phosphorus in our DNA, or zinc, or I mean, any element besides hydrogen and helium, the only way the universe makes that is in the belly of a star. That's what makes larger atoms than the universe began with. Then all of those stars had to die, mm. explode, unravel into space, and then new stars and, and new planets formed out of that debris, and that's where our atoms come from. So we are literally not, this is not philosophy. This is not any kind of conjecture. This is something we observe. We observe <laughs> stars pumping out new atoms. And a couple of years ago, for the very first time, we saw a star produce large amounts of gold and platinum and silver all at once. 10,000 times the mass of the Earth in gold made it in an instant. And these are observations. This is from the Hubble Space Telescope. Like I said, this is not conjecture. This is science. Yes. This is science. <laughs> like, this yeah. much we know. There's, there's plenty we don't know. <laughs> right. But we know in terms of our chemistry, in terms mm -hmm. of our, our, our physical makeup. You know, you have in you atoms that we picked up on the other side of the galaxy, 100,000 light years away from where we are now. A light year being about 6 trillion miles. Mm -hmm. You have in you a galaxy, not just a single star. And so, you know, you are a vast, ancient thing. I'm going to try to get to, like, the laywoman's terms here. No. So I'm going to just keep asking this question. What does that mean? Like, like when you say you have in you a galaxy, the literal version of me goes, wait, what do you mean? I was just born from my parents. And where are the pieces? And I think a lot of us, we didn't get as much education in this. And so sometimes it does feel so far away, you can't wrap your mind around it, which is probably why I know you, you host How the Universe Works and giving people this. Right. So what do you mean by that? You know, it, it's funny, actually, how simple it is. I think a lot of people are almost sort of looking for it to be complicated. <laughs> <laughs> but but it's, it's not. The Milky Way galaxy, and of course, we know of billions of other galaxies. We study them with our telescopes. My brain does not comprehend these numbers any differently than you do. <laughs> it has a huge number of stars. And the Milky Way is huge. I mean, to give you a little bit of a really simple sense of scale, the sun is a giant thing. You can fit a million Earths inside the sun. Mm -hmm. And the sun is a star, just like the other stars in the sky. The other stars you see are suns just far enough away that they look very dim. And we're all moving around in a circle around this Milky Way galaxy. So if a million Earths could fit inside the sun, so how big is the galaxy compared to the sun? So if the sun were the size of the dot of an eye on a page of text, mm -hmm. our one galaxy would, would be about twice the size of the Earth. So, you know, we were in a vast cloud of stars where even the sun is tiny and, and mm -hmm. we're all together in this galaxy. And as we have orbited around and around this galaxy over the lifetime of the Earth and the solar system, we accumulate bits of dead stars, stars that have unraveled or exploded when they died. And in that debris are all of the chemical elements that make us up. There's no way to get oxygen that you're breathing now, except that that oxygen atom was actually made inside a star that then died. Mm -hmm. There's no way to get the iron that makes your blood red. The iron is actually kind of fun because mm -hmm. the iron is only formed when a star dies violently in a big explosion. Wow. Uh, and so the iron in your blood was formed you know, the instant a star died. And we don't mean that metaphorically. Literally, that's the only thing in the universe that makes an iron atom. So yes, of course, we formed inside our, our mother's wombs and our relatives and we eat things and then that, that goes into who we are and makes up our bodies. But the thing about science is you just keep asking the question one more time. So where did that come from? And the answer is astounding because we know this to be true. We see this happening all around us. 
We see stars exploding. We see new atoms coming out of them. We see them gathering themselves up into clouds that then form planets. And now we're trying to, to see you know, if there's any evidence of other life. I mean, I'm sure there must be other life out, out there in the universe. The, the question is getting the, the real evidence, you know, so it's not yeah. just conjecture, but do we have real evidence of it? But this was the story I couldn't get out of my head. I actually heard it first from Carl Sagan, you know, all the way back when I was mm. a child, that there is no way to make an atom of carbon or of calcium or anything except by a star dying. And so you are a galaxy put together. And, and once again, that dust from the dead stars made all of these rich chemicals, created the conditions we needed for life to start. And now you're a little bit of the galaxy. You contain billions of dead stars inside you that blew up other planets and maybe other beings. And that's where your yourself, your body, you know, as you breathe in, you're breathing in trillions and trillions and trillions of new atoms each time you breathe. And with all of that, you're breathing in new worlds, new stars, new histories. And then your atoms eventually disperse and become other things. So, you know, we have this shared moment right now where, you know, we who are listening right now and who are seeing this, we have the shared moment right now of being the things that are alive right now. You know, we weren't 100 years ago, and we won't be. The, the atoms will move on in 100 years. So, I mean, we're almost more like a weather pattern than we are <laughs> a discrete thing because the atoms come and go. You I know, they sort of clump together in these clouds called us, and then they go somewhere else. But, you know, amazingly, you get this one chance to walk in New York on a beautiful spring evening and look up and experience and see and leave the universe with that lesson. What was it like to be you that evening? You know, what were you feeling? What were you smelling in the air? What sounds were there? You know, that's a lesson I, I hope the universe always gets to keep. So uh, you could have me crying this entire time. Like, I'm like on the verge of tears every moment. Um, I do a lot of crying, but this is my job. We're trying to figure out who we are. Yeah. Okay, so you have this part of you that is like the scientist that's like, what's the chemistry, the makeup, what we are, and we're starting to understand that more and more. When you combine this with your life experience, this brief period so far that the universe has gotten to live through you, I've heard you talk about your grief, but also the rest of your life experience. What does that like meld into for you that is a lesson or has fueled how you live every day? Just the, the huge worth of every life, but not just me, everyone. You know, the idea that, you know, this is your one chance to be an ant or, you know, <laughs> you, even the tragic things, right? The universe is one chance. I mean, yeah. it's it's mind-blowing and it's frightening and it can be terrifying. Um, the universe is one chance to be, you know, a scientist who's from Milwaukee who has grieved and has loved mm -hmm. and has, is, is finding, finding her way slowly back to joy. You know, mm -hmm. the lessons we just send out into the universe. And, and I, I don't know if there's any larger consciousness. I don't know if there's anything that values these experiences. But the thing is, is that it exists. You know, the entirety of space and time and the vastness that we're part of. I mean, yes, we're a tiny part of it, but we are part of it. You are vast. <laughs> you are ancient. Mm -hmm. And the, the story is much bigger than people know. The only thing I can take out of it is, is compassion, that we are all these little brief but vast expressions, little vibrations in the universe that come and go. And, you know, we are all miracles. We are all unique. So in terms of any kind of spirituality other than, you know, I have this sort of need to acknowledge this vast beauty and sometimes this vast terror, we find ourselves in this together. 
you know, we, we're not going to get an ultimate why. I mean, why is that we're, you know, atoms formed and mixed in water and here we are. But there's got to be something a little more to that why. And to me, I think that's the experience that we share, that, you know, completely powerless in life and death. Briefly, we get to say to each other, look up, you know, and look at me and see the universe and see me in front of you and see love and see grief and see vastness. And, you know, that's something that never leaves me for a second. So that's you know, in the fabric of my life. Wow. You are profound. Yeah, you know, we don't know yet why the Big Bang started. We don't know, you know, basic physics, what happens inside a black hole. Mm. A, a lot of our physics these days heavily imply that space and time don't exist as we perceive them, mm-hmm. that we're only perceiving kind of a slice of them. Well, I remember one thing you said in The Big Think was that, in a way, even though your husband had passed away, you were still falling in love with him. You were still holding his hand. You were still doing all these things. Like, how, what, <laughs> what do you mean space-time is different? Well, it, it actually, it goes back such a long time, even if you just take it back 100 years to Albert Einstein. And our physics really doesn't work with just linear time. And when Einstein realized that what gravity is, is a bending, a curving of space and time itself. And again, this is something we can see. There are objects in the universe, you know, the 20 mile across, dead stars, a ball of compressed material that made when a star dies. And it has so much gravity that space bends around it so you can see behind it as well as in front of it. Hmm. And it's right there in front of you. Einstein didn't think that there was any way for moments in space and time to just sort of come and go like a river. But he thought more if you had the right perspective and our brains were able to see in this perspective that you could see the whole of space and time laid out like a landscape. Every point in space existing and every point in time existing at once. And when his best friend died, he wrote a letter to that man's wife and said, grieve if you must, but we're still meeting them and we're still having lunch with them and we're still holding hands with them. That moment is unfolding always. We've already been dead for billions of years. You know, If you have a fear of death, you're already there. The universe hasn't birthed its first star and the earth hasn't formed. And all of those, what we think of as moments, they have happened, they are yet to happen, and they are happening all at once. And that's old physics. And the stuff that my husband did, he did very special physics. And I would often remark to him that I thought he was taking this a little bit lightly. His instruments that he worked on for NASA, they wouldn't work if time and space were just the linear time and space we perceive. His cameras wouldn't be able to take images. His cameras took advantage of the fact that time and space is a lot more complex than we understand. And honestly, this shouldn't surprise us because you know why should the human brain mm. automatically understand everything about the universe? There's more to the space and time thing. Right. You know, it's probably a whole volume and we're only seeing a slice at a time. And our brains just aren't there yet. We're not able to perceive the whole thing at once. Maybe other civilizations far more advanced than us already have. But how cool to know Mm -hmm. that we have that much more to understand about the universe. We're taking a quick break. When we get back, more from Michelle Fowler on exploring the connection between the universe and us. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. 
On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back with astronomer at NASA, Michelle Fowler. I live for these kinds of conversations <laughs> because I I am I was not one of those kids that was like super good at math or physics and I was better with writing and the truth is I've always been a learner but it never felt super accessible in school and so yeah. I was telling you earlier you know Contact which was like a 1990 something movie with yes. Jodie Foster is one it was my favorite movie it still is I watch it a few times a year because it begs the question that like you know forget your schooling forget if you have the academic kind of like prowess to talk deeply about physics, it begs the question of like, what are we doing here? What are we made up of? What else is out there? And it's those big questions that fuel me. So I I so appreciate your work. You know, I've heard you talk about your own experiences that were personal and deep, but then you're also this scientist and so you feel very human and accessible. Well, I mean, and one of the things you have to realize is that the way we experience these facts in the social construct of science, the way we teach science and the way we present science and even the word science these are social constructs. I mean, much the same way that, you know, we used to think there was a way to be a man and a way to be a woman. Or, mm -hmm. you know, what, what does ethnicity mean? What does skin mm -hmm. color mean? All of these are social constructs. They have nothing to do with reality. And so the idea that science has to be complex and difficult and confusing is a holdover from a time when, you know, the people that were allowed to do science were basically, you know, the second sons of rich families who didn't mm -hmm. have to inherit the estate. There was nothing to do with them. And the world favored them and, and catered to them, built this culture around science. And the fact of where you come from and what your atoms are made from belongs to you just as much as anybody else. And so mm -hmm. this idea of the ivory tower and keeping people out from learning science and saying it's so hard, learning science is no different than anything else that needs, you need some time. Like, like you, for example, if you want to become fluent in French, it's going to take some years. It's going to take some time, some practice, some trial and error, some making mistakes. But you hardly ever hear people say to somebody in college, like, well, you could never learn French. You just don't have the mind for it. There are mental differences and people can perceive different things in different ways. But we do science such a disservice the way it's been taught. Mm -hmm. I agree. So I want to ask you then, if you were meeting a group of five-year-olds and they had no physics background and you wanted to take your 25-year career and all that you've learned and understand, what would you say to give them perspective on the universe and on their lives based on what you understand? 
science isn't about telling people a body of knowledge. It's about asking questions. And I would have had a much easier time in my education if I felt my own power, my, my own agency, as it were, to be able to ask a question and then to investigate it. So the idea that in your mind right now you are enough to be a scientist, there is no specific facts or body of knowledge you need to ingest. It's all about, you know, you taking a breath and feeling your own power to open your eyes and observe the universe as this little bit of the universe that's never existed before and never will again. And what interests you? And what I would say is once you get them going on that, you know, people always joke about kids asking why, you know, encourage them to ask why one more time. So, mm -hmm. you know, why is that sweater green? You know, what makes the color green? What is what is light? What do we mean by that? Where does light come from? You know, why do we enjoy those colors? How, how does our eye perceive them? You know, what is the brain doing? And all of a sudden you've opened up, you know, this huge horizon of questions. And so that idea that, you know, you already are here. You know, you're a little bit of the universe, like we talked about, opening its eyes briefly. What do you see? Hmm. What do you like? What do you want to know more about? And maybe you'll have an idea that nobody else ever did. And trust yourself and trust your worth that, that your own thoughts are as good a way to perceive the universe as anything else. Hmm. You know, there's no economics or racism or sexism or the universe belongs as much to you as any other being that has ever existed. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think that's how I would start five-year-olds on the path to be a scientist. I love that. I mean, children are so fascinating because they don't have so much of what we've accumulated. And a lot of what we've accumulated is socialization, right? Yeah. So you even talking about, like, the ways in which we're told we can and can't learn or grow and expand based on our history or based on things feeling hard or things being yeah. inaccessible. Children don't do that. And, and then as they become adults that set in stone these beliefs that we, I think a lot of us then, move forward with. And we say, that's just how it is. That's just how the world is. That's just the way life is. Instead of like, oh, wait, why is life this way? Or is that true? I mean, I mean, one of the lessons I took from grief was having to learn how to be my own advocate. And it sounds trite, but I mean, seeing as I spent most of my life kind of beating myself up for not being better at science or winning grant money or mm. organizing my life or whatever, you know, the idea that for a while you don't have the energy to put yourself down. You'll get to a dangerous place if you do. And it's just, again, taking that breath and relaxing and saying, you, you know, what you're feeling is legitimate. Mm -hmm. What you're thinking is legitimate. You know, let the judgment just creep away for a while. Just kind of go away with the tide for a while. Give yourself some space just to say, maybe I am smart enough. Maybe I'm exactly what I'm supposed to be. You know, we've been put into different cultural boxes and societal boxes, but just taking a break from it. Mm -hmm. And saying, you know, we don't understand anything about that. I, mean, I was trying to tell the community college students yesterday that the idea that there's a right brain, left brain, there's like a logical brain side and a creative brain side. Do you know that has no basis in reality? There's no basis in science. <laughs> I had no idea, but that's no. wow. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's not like, you know, you do MRIs and the artist, oh, oh yeah, that's your left part of the brain. This lights right up. The way. No. So, I mean, there are some centers in our brain, like the speech center, where mm -hmm. you know, we know that if this particular part of the brain is injured, people have trouble speaking or understanding words. But there's no such thing. The idea that we only use 10% of our brain, no mm -hmm. basis in fact. The idea that there is a left brain, right brain, no basis in fact. Mm -hmm. So we put ourselves so willingly into these boxes because we're told, oh, yes, 
that's how it is. There's a right brain, left brain. I mean, one of the things I've had to fight against hardest in life is that people kept saying all the way back to when I was a kid that I didn't have the right personality to be a scientist. And I think by that, wow. they sort of meant the stereotype of somebody that was maybe socially withdrawn, very logical, very dispassionate, not very emotional. And that's not me at all. I tried to make myself into that character to fit in. Pretty much my life before I had to deal with some very difficult emotions like grief. And then I couldn't. I didn't have the mental energy to try to change my behavior to what I thought it was supposed to be. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, for me, the experience of grief stripped down a lot of the stuff where I wanted to be something different. I wanted to be more logical. I wanted to be more like a typical traditional male scientist. And I'd spent so much mental energy trying to put myself somewhere where I wasn't. And instead, it turns out you can be just as good a scientist being exactly the way you are with all your emotions and all your doubts and all your need to dance and your love of big prom dresses and whatever else. And just put down that judgment that's been put on us. I got to a place where I couldn't support the grief I was going through, the life I was trying to lead, the legal questions, the, you know, the working full time, the dealing with the pandemic and tearing myself down. And it's, a, it's an incredible gift you know, a, a bit of a dark gift for having grieved, but the gift to actually know you can put those things down. It actually is possible. Mm -hmm. I had my own experience of that or have had multiple experiences that I have to put this down or I can no longer hold this. And the thing is, it feels a little untethered for a while because you go, then yeah. what do I hold? <laughs> if I'm putting all this down, like, what do I pick up? It's a mix of your authentic choices, understanding experience of life that you create a new way of showing up, a new way of being that feels liberated and can sometimes also feel isolating if you don't have people around you who've also sort of gone through that transformation, even if they didn't end up right where you did. Oh. But that have I feel like that understanding of what it's like to go, I can no longer subscribe here. So I've got to like write my own paper, you know, that I publish every week. <laughs> it's interesting you say isolating because that was my experience too. What, 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 can I ask, what was that experience in life that got you to can't hold these things all at once? I live in New York. I'm from California. I had moved across the country back to California. And I moved mostly because I was 28 and I thought, well, everybody I know left New York. As I said, well, I guess it's time for me to go home too. And deep down, I knew that that wasn't true, but I did. I went home and I took a new job and I lived in San Francisco and I hated everything about all of it. <laughs> I love my family. I was an hour away from my family or 30 minutes. They had their own lives. And, it, you know, it's like the realization that the expectation didn't meet the reality. And not just that, but that like somewhere so deep inside of me, I was like, this is not the right movie for me. And I don't even know what my movie is, but it is not. And I don't know how I'll make it if I continue down this path. And so it was for me, it was being offered a position to climb the next to the next kind of rung of the role that I was in in San Francisco that woke me up and like my gut and something inside of me just like slapped me in the face and was like, you can't do this. I and mean, this isn't for you. I just felt off. 
I am someone who believes that there is something else going on outside of us. I don't know what that higher consciousness is. I don't necessarily subscribe to anything or anything like that, but I know that there's something else going on. And I ask that something else, that universe or universal intelligence for help or guidance. And I do deeply believe in prayer. And I got the answer in the form of a podcast, funny enough, which I didn't have a podcast at the time. I wasn't doing anything close to this. And I listened to this podcast that changed my life. And so for me, that was the moment that I was like, oh, my God, I've been open to something that is going to change the entire course of my existence. And that was my moment where I was like, I can't go back. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. I've I've had the experience of friends changing, of relationships transforming, new people coming into my life and going, wow, these people are so different than the people I call it's like BCAD, you know? <laughs> so that was my experience of just going through this process of like hitting the wall and making the final choice to say like, I've got to choose something else. And I actually have no idea what's in front of me, but I cannot stay here and I can't go backwards. Mm-hmm. And how brave of you to feel that and to acknowledge that. I also pray quite a bit. And people are often sort of surprised by that because I I don't belong to any religion. I don't have any particular ideas about religion or an afterlife or a universal meeting or any of that. But sometimes, like you said, that ability to just within you talk to that universal existence and say, please, I need some help. I need some guidance. And also just the gratitude, the exaltation of, you know, thank you for letting me be this little bit of life. Mm-hmm. You know, that idea of stopping and appreciating, you can do that through prayer or through meditation or, or many other ways. But I always had to exalt. I always had to praise. I always had to ask for guidance. And I think a lot of people, again, they want to put what a science brain is into a box. You know, well, well don't mm-hmm. scientists not do that? I mean, mm-hmm. prayer is a deep thing. Mm-hmm. The thing that I'm sort of really amazed about, and we talked about isolation, is that with grief, I had to actually confront emotions I could not put down. In in the yeah. past, I was able to sort of control my emotions. I think that was probably you know damaging inside to some degree. But with the grief was the first time, and it was terrifying as hell, that I could not just get on top of this emotion and tamp it down. Um, it, I mean, it was like a wave washing over me, and I couldn't get to the top of it. I did not have the ability to make these emotions go away. Mm-hmm. And through the entire thing, I was working and dealing with legalities. This was, this was not me, you know, being on the floor, unable to, like, function. It's interesting that even when you feel that way, you can keep moving forward. I did spend mm-hmm. a lot of days on the floor, seriously. But there were days mm-hmm. I could not get up off the floor. But then the next day I had to get to work, you know, and I had to keep going. But the idea of being with something bigger than yourself... You know, this is something I can't control or turn off, and it is going to change me. One thing you do get to see when your spouse dies young is, you know, I thought we had all this time. I thought we had this time Mm -hmm. for a future, to retire together, to travel, and I am so glad. I mean, thank the universe. You know, we played, and we traveled, and we danced, and we had a great time, and we were silly, and we did everything we wanted to. And so when this person finally closed their eyes on the world, there really was nothing left that hadn't been done. The, the mourning was we wanted more of it. You know, we, we wanted more of the good stuff. But um, I am so glad we didn't wait. Wait until we, the time was right or we had enough time or we had enough money, you know, or we, we really knew what we were doing or we had the right plans. I'm so glad we didn't wait for any of that. You know, we, we, whatever was in our way, we tried to embrace it. 
And, you know, to be precious with the time you're given because you don't know what that's going to be. You know, my husband mm -hmm. went from absolutely fine to dead in nine months. And that's going to happen to some people out there, some people that are probably listening to this podcast. You know, and eventually, of course, we'll all close our eyes on this world. And so being so grateful and so precious and then having the bravery to say, how am I going to follow my heart and my mind? This unique bit of the universe that's me, what does it want to show the universe? What would I like to leave as my lesson? I think once you ask yourself that question and you feel that you're not immortal, you've watched your husband die, you're never going to look at life the same way again. And it's not all bad. You know, as, as difficult as grief can be, the transformation can be powerful. Um, I wish to the universe it hadn't happened. I'd rather be that person I was before. I'd rather none of this have happened. But the time is precious and we are precious and everyone around you is precious. Hmm. Michelle, what do you know about awe, the experience of awe? Hmm. So it's something I've felt from a very small child. And like I said, I am privileged in life to work in a field professionally where I'm confronted with awe all the time. I learn something new at work every day. It's like every day, it's like, wow, <laughs> a new observation. <laughs> and some of them are, are really amazing and, and fun. And some of them are really terrifying and thought provoking, like some of the climate change stuff I was reading mm -hmm. this morning. I mean, awe can be in so many parts of your life when you feel that presence of something larger than you. You know, awe is not something you need to chase. It's not something that is rare and difficult to find. I mean, you are swimming in it every moment, you know, swimming in it like a fish is breathing water. Awe is moving in and out of your body. It's just there if you take a moment to listen to it. Just take a moment and feel your life moving in and out of you. And, and awe is right there, right inside you at any time. That's beautiful. What do you know about the universe after mm. all this? <laughs> well, is this my job? I, I mean, I, I mean, I certainly know a lot, of, a lot of facts about what we know. I think the thing that I know about the universe, which is most intriguing and most awe-inspiring is, you know, in science, I've had to confront nose to nose that, that we do not understand reality yet. Mm. We don't understand the nature of reality. We don't understand how time and space work. I mean, we're these lovely higher order primates, you know, <laughs> these, these wonderful higher order primates don't have the brain yet mm -hmm. to actually see everything that is. We are seeing slices of something, but we're not seeing the whole thing yet. That is obvious in the physics, in the experiments. I mean, we're getting very good at something called quantum teleportation. As we become more and more adept at quantum computing, these effects are going to be more things we need to actually learn how to manipulate and control and, and use for better computers. And um, we know for a fact that space and time is not the way our brains perceive it, that we are missing a lot. And so, I mean, to me, that's what drives the science and the curiosity and the awe. I'm never going to know the answers. And as soon as we have answers to that, there'll be more questions. Mm -hmm. But, you know, mm -hmm. the wonderful thing I know about the universe is we haven't seen anything yet. Mm -hmm. I love that. All right. So I'm going to have you complete these three statements, Michelle. Better humans are? Compassionate. Better work is? Joyful. And what does a better world have? Balance. What does that mean? It seems our life is very out of balance right now in terms of what we as a species are doing. I think we're being confronted with a false narrative that we can either choose to 
literally destroy our environment. We're not going to destroy the earth. The earth is fine. It's going to go on without us. And life will go on without us. The fact of the matter is we are in for centuries of significant climate change. Mm -hmm. And that will rewrite borders, geopolitical borders. You know, people will have to live in different places, do different things. I mean, that's not a question. And let's keep our environment healthy. Let's not destroy our standard of living. You know, let's make enough food for people. Like I said, this is not the end of humanity. Mm-hmm. What happens if the, you know, the plankton collapses and there's no more fish that we can fish? I mean, all of that. You know, what happens when the entire nations of, of Bangladesh and parts of India are underwater and a billion people need to be relocated? You know, I mean, the earth is going to give us those scenarios. Mm-hmm. And it is absolutely survivable. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Because we're going to have to work together. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for just for being here, for sharing yourself, for being such a human and open and passionate and curious scientist. (laughs) Well, sure. Thank you for having me. It was wonderful to speak with you. That was Michelle Fowler, astronomer, research scientist and assistant director for science communication at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. One big thing before we go. When I consider what this conversation was really about, I feel like its themes are universal for how we live better and more intentionally. It's asking big questions, changing our perceptions, and living our lives the way the universe would if it had just one chance to look through our eyes. If this conversation was inspiring and has you reflecting on the bigger picture, share it with someone who might benefit from doing the same. Maybe this conversation will support them in ways you didn't realize and help other people like you find our show by leaving us a rating before you go. Even better, write a one-sentence review telling me what questions this conversation has sparked for you. And as always, you can find me on LinkedIn writing about human potential and meaningful living. In the Arena is a production of LinkedIn News. The show is produced by Alexis Ramdow and Rafa Fariha. Asaf Drone makes sure we sound good in the studio. Joe DeGiorgi mixed our show. Enrique Montalvo is the executive producer of LinkedIn Editorial Productions. Dave Pond is head of news production. Courtney Coop is head of LinkedIn Original Audio and Video. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. And I'm Leah Smart. Thanks for coming with me, and I'll see you next week.